0: Greetings to everyone, any and everywhere, I guess. Before you know it, Passover season will be upon us. We're quickly marching through January, and it won't be long. Someone suggested that we might open our home, some of us who have room and can, for those who will be coming from other areas to keep the Passover with us. I know there are quite a few around the country who are planning on coming out and being here the entire seven days, uh, as we used to do in the past. So that can be a burden in terms of finances if they come out for both Passover and for uh, Feast of Tabernacles and the Fall Festivals. So some of us might be able to do that and if so, I'm sure it would be very appreciated by those who will be coming in. I'm going to ask Charlotte to keep a list, you might just mention to her if you do have rooms and how many beds you might have available or so on, uh, so that we can sort of match people up. Although you may have people who are coming that you would like to invite yourself uh, personally and that's fine, but if you have no one in particular that you know that you might like to have. Might be a chance to get to know someone you don't know, and uh, you could just put your room up for auction, or rooms, or whatever. I don't mean for auction, but they could be a sign. We will likely have the Passover service here, as we did last year, and then have the first holy day the next day, uh, up at Zion, as well as the last day there. In the intervening days, we would meet here. That would help with the expense as well, to be able to to be here in our own facility and not have to go up and stay in motels. Uh, here's a, an announcement from Bill and Hanley Smook down in uh, South Africa. Their daughter, Simone, has had severe problems with her tonsils over the last year and has been running a high fever uh, throwing up recently. And Christopher, the boy, uh, has some chronic ear infections and is still having difficulty with those. So they've sent word around that we might pray in their behalf. As those of you here know, and I think I mentioned in Bible study the other night, we've uh, redrilled some wells and added some that we didn't have and they've all been very fine wells. We made them much bigger this time, a 12-inch casing with a 30-inch hole and filled it with gravel, and they're really producing well. We hit water at about 24 feet, uh, 24 to 32 depending on the exact terrain where the wells were drilled, and we drilled them down to 80, 80 plus feet, so we have at least I guess in almost every case, at least a 50-foot column of water in each well. So God has given us a place where there is a lot of water. And even though it's a desert terrain, underneath there is water. That doesn't mean we ought to waste it, certainly. We ought to conserve it and be careful with it, uh, as we are just stewards with anything God gives us. Yet at the same time, He has not left us out here without a drink. Uh, or our animals, or our gardens, or whatever. So that has been a tremendous blessing, and uh, we were able to do it without any charge to the community uh, at all. It's something I was able to handle personally, and uh, that's a donation and a gift to the community. Uh, in terms of used clothing, uh, and the hall and so on, I have a couple of comments. Uh, It it seems that we have rooms upstairs where we put used clothing for those who wish it, and most are making sure it's clean, ironed, whatever it needs, and putting it up there. But it seems that some go up to try things on and just leave them lay, uh, or they knock things off hangers and just leave them on the floor or they look at the blankets, unfold them to to see them, and then just pile them back up there without folding them. And we've had mud tracked through the hall a great deal and mud tracked upstairs. Uh, There are people who spend hours every week cleaning this building. And it would be very much appreciated if we would recognize and appreciate that and be cognizant of it and be careful and how we treat and do things. Um, And as a general rule, that thoughtfulness needs to be seen throughout. Uh, Toys are often gotten out for the children to play with and then just left wherever they happen to drop them. Um, Basketballs thrown around and left, whatever. Uh, Chairs pulled out, used, and then just left out. You know, it doesn't take any longer to put it back in than it did to take it out. It doesn't take any longer to clean up after yourself than it did to make the mess. It doesn't take any longer to take your shoes off or clean them. Uh, It certainly takes longer to clean up after you than for you to make the mess. So can we be cognizant and thoughtful of others and not just in our own hurry and be sure that we take care of things in decent and proper order? Some of you around the country have wondered, and I've gotten a couple of calls about the floods we've had because it's hit national news. Uh, The last I heard, there were about 25 homes uh, lost in the St. George area, St. George, Santa Clara, and some down at Beaver Dam uh, in what is termed a 100-year flood, the kind of flood that comes on about once every 100 years. But thankfully, none of us here have been directly affected by any of that. In fact, we got quite a bit of snow and rain, but not so much that you would think it would cause a problem. And I drove to St. George one day almost at the height of the flooding and could see really no effects of it except the River Road was closed and I could see water across it. So the water was obviously high, and then the next day the home started washing away over in Santa Clara. Some of our people live sort of above it, uh, up the hill away, and could see a lot of the damage, but we're not affected by it. So we're to expect more and more of this. I think that the tsunami and the earthquakes in Southeast Asia uh, may have hit there first and should be a heads-up and a warning for Israel, because it's coming here to a place near you very soon. And Having it hit this close uh, in floods in this past week should bring that home to us to realize that things are bad all over and they're going to get far, far worse as this end time progresses. Uh, One other announcement, uh, I just learned that Dean Wilson, a longtime evangelist in the Church of God, uh, has died in the last, I didn't notice the date, in the last day or two or three at least, And one by one, they're all going down, which indicates to me we're getting closer and closer to this end, the end of this age, because I truly believe that God is working with this generation. And he said, this generation will not pass until these things have happened. So the old men who saw the church at its height are dying off and Haggai does tell us that there will be some remaining who can compare what was with what shall be. So what shall be has to happen fairly soon in my estimation and my understanding of those scriptures. I'm not going to set any dates, but uh, soon and suddenly. Let's get on then, back to the book of Isaiah. There are a series of chapters here, some of which we have already been going through and some of which we will address today, in which is an overall summary statement. God is making his case for who he is. He's trying to convince us that he truly is God. He's announcing what he has done. And he uses much the same approach that he used with Job when Job finally began to wake up. God said, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Where were you when I made the heavens and the stars? And Job could not answer a word. Well, where were we? And who are we to think we're anything compared to God? And yet we have difficulty accepting that the Lord of the universe, the Almighty God of all that there is, knows what is best for human beings. Our carnal human nature, which is enmity to God, has difficulty dealing with the way God wants things done and has instructed for things to be done. So before God... Finishes destroying the church and finishes destroying Israel and the nations, he wants to make it clear who he is so that none has any excuse. And that's why he wrote the prophecies, to let us know what would come, what the horrors would be, and then what he would do about it in the long run. And we went through, at the end of last week, chapter 47 of Isaiah, which addresses Babylon and tells her to sit on the ground. She's going to be desolate. And interestingly, verse 6, he says, I was angry with my people. He ties Babylon and his people Israel together. And we had a whole series of sermons showing that America today is, in in Britain, are the leaders of Babylon, and that they will be destroyed. People who dwell carelessly, as he says in verse 8. And sudden destruction will come, verse 11, and we won't know where it comes from and won't be expecting it, but sudden destruction on our peoples. He mentions the the merchants in verse 15. It's an economic Babylon and that certainly ties in well with Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 17 and 18. So he addresses Babylon as his people, Israel, and we have become Babylonian. We are ruled over by Babylonians. Then he addresses in chapter 48, where we're picking it up today, the house of Jacob. Spiritual Israel is the first one that he addresses here. Physical Israel comes later, and this analogy, it seems, never breaks down. What he says will happen to Israel is happening to spiritual Israel first. We've been over that ground many times. I hope this doesn't get old to you, because God has written it over and over and over again. And it does not get old to me. I have been poring over these scriptures now for nine solid years. And they are still new, because I can watch the progression of what God said would happen to the church, and I can watch in the news the progression of what he said would happen to physical Israel, and at the same time, I can take hope in the promises of what it will be once the destruction has occurred. And that in spite of all the trouble we have been through and are going to go through, Yet and still, it's going to turn out right for those who will respond to God and will obey Him and will accept that He is God, that His word is inviolate, and that He knows what is best for us. In every category, in every part of life, we might have one or two or three things that we like to hold to ourselves that we disagree with God on. But we need to get over that and humble ourselves and yield to his word. So let's continue here. Hear you this, O house of Jacob, and let's apply this first to ourselves in the church, which are called by the name of Israel, which Paul referred to as the Israel of God, the church, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah. Are we not those which came forth from the What God established is spiritual Jews here in the end time. That spiritual Judah has been and is being destroyed, and we have come forth from it. So this is a very timely prophecy. Which swear by the name of the Eternal, which say they are of God, and make mention of the God of Israel... We know we're the church, we know God is God, but there is yet a problem. But not in truth nor in righteousness. We're not willing to face the truth about ourselves. Sometimes we're not willing to face the truth of Scripture. And we're not willing to live according to God's way. We allow ourselves to maintain some habits, some ways of life, some ways of thinking that are unrighteous. And pride, spiritual vanity, and thinking we have need of nothing is one of them. For they call themselves of the holy city, and aren't we, as Paul says in Hebrews 12, the holy city the Jerusalem, from above. That's what God calls his church. Many times we've been over that. but Here it is again. They call themselves of the church, the city of God, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Might have the right God in mind, but we still object to and are not willing to submit to some of his words, and we're told to live by every word of God and not leave any to fall to the ground. I have declared the former things from the beginning. Here, see, he's establishing again who he is. We don't know too much about history. We try to figure it all out and piece it together. We don't know too much about the future. We try to figure it out and piece it all together. But God knows from the very beginning, and he knows the end, ahead of time, exactly what is going to happen. And they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. We can look at some of the prophecies in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We can look at some of the prophecies given to the prophets back in the days of the early history of Israel, And they have come to pass. And right before our eyes, they are still coming to pass. And that is going to come to pass with greater and greater intensity as time goes on. But God knew them all along. Because I knew that you are obstinate or stubborn, and your neck is an iron sinew and your brow brass. He calls us stiff-necked and stubborn in other places. In Hosea, he says we're like a backsliding heifer. I think that's in Isaiah as well. We looked at that last week, I think. I made, made that analogy. Plant all four feet, lean back on our tail while someone tries to pull on our neck. That's the way God describes the church today, spiritual Israel. Obstinate and stubborn, and our neck is an iron sinew. Doesn't bend too easily. Doesn't yield. Stiff. And you can take it right between the eyes because you have a brass brow. You can take it, but not yield to it. You can take the punishment, but not change, is what he says about us. I just made an announcement about tracking mud in the hall, mud up the stairs, mud in the bathroom, mud in the kitchen. Going in to a room that people have set up with used clothing and made sure they were clean and hung up properly and folded up, and yet people leave them in disarray like they're in Kmart and could care less. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? Is it a big deal to track a little mud on the floor? Let's look at this attitude a moment. What it is, is utter selfishness, arrogance, pride, vanity, ego, total selfishness. What it says is, I am more important than you. My time is far more important than yours. I'm in a hurry. What it says is, me coming in to do what I want to do is more important than those people who work hours to clean up after me. Their time is not important to me. They don't have anything to do that's important, but I do. I don't have time to pick my shoes off because I'm in a hurry. They have time to spend hours every week cleaning up after you. You don't volunteer to clean up for them. We've had the same people on hall duty now and bathroom duty for months and months. Call it years. No one, other than a couple of volunteers, once in a while some of the young people, have volunteered to come in and help. No one has says, why don't I take that for three months? They can do it. How arrogant, how presumptuous can we be? How obstinate, stiff-necked, and brass-browed can we be? Now, this is a small matter, it would seem, We've had problems with the honor system. Salt disappearing and the money not in to pay for it. We've had eggs disappear, ice cream disappear, people not paying for it. That's thievery. And saying, well, I'll pay for it later and then not, is thievery in its pure and simple form. It's also arrogance and presumption. This is a community that should reflect the character of God. Can't we even have an honor system on small things? God says if we'll be faithful in little, we'll be faithful in much. When are we going to learn to be faithful in little? Why do you think someone else should pay for the ingredients for ice cream and you eat it free? You're more important than they are? What utter selfishness and arrogance. Now this probably applies to a few. But I think the mud in the hall probably applies to a bunch of people and leaving the lights on, and not putting the chairs back, and putting the toys back when we're through. It is utter arrogance. I am more important, and my time is more important than yours. We can read these things about how Israel and the church is stiff-necked, full of pride and vanity, but maybe we need some examples once in a while of our own conduct to show us that it's us. It's not the other guy, it's us. Who do you think you are? Who do we think we are? Who do I think I am? I got to thinking about there, been a few times I've cracked some mud in here, thinking I was in a hurry to get something done. Well, shame on me. I think I'd better take the time to take my shoes off if they're dirty and not expect somebody else to clean up after me. My wife won't tolerate it. Why should those who clean the hall? Maybe instead of cleaning, they ought to sit here at the door and say, take your shoes off, stupid. Selfish, carnal. This could apply to a lot of things, but it's just something that came up. But I think we need to take it deeply serious, because it does reflect an attitude. See, the mud is not as bad as the attitude behind placing that mud. It shows a lack of concern and service, a lack of thankfulness, it shows disregard and selfishness. There might be someone who take, who take exception to me even making such an announcement and saying this because they don't like to be told what to do. They don't like authority in any form. You know, this government problem in the church is a two-way street. Yes, the Bible condemns a ministry who misused and abused. But at the same time, God makes it clear that we as individuals have not yielded, that we are carnal and stubborn and selfish. It wasn't Moses that was the problem at Sinai. It was those who made a golden calf, got naked, and danced. And we have to take personal culpability for what is not right. We can go home and gripe about the sermon. We can go home and gripe about the ministry. But what are we doing? When we do that, we are hurting ourselves terribly because we're teaching our children that the church and the ministry cannot be respected or obeyed. We're teaching them hypocrisy because we come and hear and go home and deny in front of our children. Instead of saying, I disagree with that, I will go to the person who said it and we will come to see eye to eye one way or another, we go home and grumble and mutter and teach hypocrisy to our children. You think that lesson is missed on our children? God is trying to show us who he is and what his word means. And he says that we are stiff-necked and rebellious. We are not willing to yield to God and his word all too often. He goes on, verse 5, I have even from the beginning declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I showed it you. We are seeing these things in the scriptures before and just as they come to pass. Some we understand a little in retrospect, but it's been in here all the time. God has showed it, we just didn't get it. God has showed it, we just didn't understand it. I was in the church for 40 years before I began to understand the truth of the prophecies. And the the truth of a lot of things that we have learned from the scripture itself. It's been here all along. God declared it from the beginning. Lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image has commanded them. You have heard, see all this, and will not you declare it? I have showed you new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. Now I think this could apply in several ways. God caused this prophecy of Isaiah to be written a long, long time ago. And nobody understood what meaning they would have here at the end. And at the same time, he's hidden them even from the church until now. And he's beginning to show the real meaning of these things for us. Verse 7, they are created now and not from the beginning. Well, does that mean they were created here at the end? Now he, he's talking here through Isaiah, and Isaiah was written back at the time Israel was about to go into captivity. Some of them perhaps had been created at that time and written right here. But even though they were written here, we still didn't know. Even before the day when you heard them not, lest you should say, Oh, I knew. There will be those who say, oh, I knew all along. I knew what was going to happen, exactly how it was going to happen. God says, no, you didn't. He may even be creating some things new right now. And he is going to tell us of them or let us know. I don't know. I don't think there is such a thing really as new truth. Because the truth has been here, and this is the faith once delivered. The faith was not once delivered to Herbert Armstrong. The faith was delivered to Moses and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and those people. What we have is now is better understanding, not new truth. Someone threw a backhanded slap at us I saw in a sermon some time back in which they said, don't let anybody tell you there's new truth. There is no new truth. I agree with that. That doesn't mean there can't be new and better understanding of old truth that was in here all along, and we never got it. I have never given you any new truth. I think I have cleared up some misunderstandings that you and I had that God has shown in his word to be better understanding. But it was there all along, wasn't it? It's just we didn't get it. We overlooked it. We bypassed it. We didn't apply it to ourselves. Now, see, that is probably the biggest problem that the church has today overall, is that nearly all apply it to someone else. Now, you and I have all experienced that. Any time the preacher starts getting red in the face and yelling, we can think of who to apply that to, can't we? See, that's an attitude that an individual can have that a whole church has. Almost every organization in the Church of God today believes that they are A, the Philadelphians, B, the very elect, if not the very, very elect, that they're the only ones who are living, or whatever. Because almost all are unwilling to accept the fact that they might be part of the problem. I hope that you and I can get beyond that and realize that the problem is us. Because the problem will not go away until people take personal responsibility for it. Verse 8, Yes, you heard not. Yes, you knew not. Yes, from that time that your ear was not open, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. God knew human nature, he knew your nature and mine, and he knew how we'd be from the time we were planted in the womb. That we would be vain, carnal, selfish, stiff-necked, and rebellious. That all our righteousness would be as filthy rags. We have to come to have the righteousness of God, because we are selfish as carnal, natural human beings, to the absolute core of our beings. We need to compare ourselves with God, if not with each other. and that's what He is trying to get across here. He is God. How do we stack up by comparison? not very high. He knew that revealing these things to us would not do us any good. He wrote them all back there, and now as we come to the end of the age, he's beginning to let us understand what is happening and why. Because he's working with a few of us who hopefully are admitting how weak, how small we are and are willing to be humbled instead of being proud, arrogant, selfish, and presumptuous. Brethren, I don't say these things just to make us act or look humble. I say these things because we are the problem. We are proud and spiritually vain and lay in Laodicean, and we need to repent and live by every word of God in true humility. We're proud of how tall we are. We're proud of how smart we are. We're proud of how handsome or beautiful we are. We're proud of where we lived or lived. We're proud of our culture, we're proud of our language, we're proud of anything you can name, we seem to be proud. Why don't we compare ourselves to where God lives on the sea of glass and the universe, who knows all the names of all the stars? Why don't we compare ourselves to how smart God is and then we'll be shorter than Bildad the shoe height, Because we begin to understand, as Job finally understood, that he didn't amount to anything, and God did. That is the kind of people God can use. And until we come to learn to have that kind of attitude, we are either unusable or clumsily usable. And the fact that we would track mud through the hall, right in front of people who are too old to do it, but who are willing to come in, in spite of how it makes them feel, and mop this place for hours every week, indicates... That we're really not there yet. We're still proud. We're still vain. We're still presumptuous, arrogant, and selfish to the core. That is a small example of walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. When a widow buys salt and puts it out here at no profit to herself, and doesn't even get her money back, I say, shame on us. Now, maybe it wasn't all us. Maybe it's some of those people who have come in from the outside and have taken advantage of us. I don't know. And I don't really care that much in some ways to find out I just wish that we would all be what we ought to be, do what we ought to do. I know outsiders did not crack all the mud in. That I know. You knew, verse 8, and you heard not. Yeah, you knew not. Yes, from that time that your ear was not opened, most of the church, still has their ear closed. They would not hear what I have said to you today and to me. They would not admit that they are anything but Philadelphian or the very elect, in spite of the proud attitudes. Now I thank God that I can say these things to you and that you might take it to heart. I could say the same things to them, and they would laugh it to scorn. They would laugh Isaiah to scorn. They would laugh God to scorn. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me, God said. God is the one who is trying to make known who he is by what he is doing to us. And so few are even beginning to get the picture. I think we have a responsibility to take this same message that we are hearing today and tell it to them. How well do you think it will be received? for the most part, hardly at all. People do not want to be told what to do. They do not want to be told they're wrong. They do not want to be told they need to repent or change. They want to be left alone and spoken smooth and easy things. That's why God told Ezekiel, I'll make your forehead as flint. That's why he told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, that they would put him in prison. Because God knew that his church would not be willing to listen to his words. You can preach these things right straight out of this book, and they will apply it to those Laodiceans. It has nothing to do with them personally. Even if they accept it's a message from God, They'll say it's a message to someone else. And if we do the same, we will suffer the same fate they are going to suffer. We are in a period right now, brethren, in which God is choosing those whom he will draw together to form the latter temple. He's almost done calling, a few at the eleventh hour, but he's basically done with that, and now from all those he's called, he's choosing a tithe for himself. Will we be part of that tithe, that 10%, that one of 10 that he mentions over and over, or will we not? We were called transgressors from the womb. He knew what human nature was. Now verse 9. For my name's sake will I defer my anger, and for my praise will I refrain for you that I cut you not off. You see, he cut almost everyone off at the Noatian Deluge. Only left eight people alive. Now he is putting together 144,000. And he has said that he will have 144,000 total that will be the Bride of Christ and that will rule as kings and priests in the millennium. And he will not and cannot fail at that because he said he will bring it to pass. It is going to happen. So... For his very own names and words' sake, he will not cut us off. Otherwise, he would, just as he did. Don't think for a moment that God has not considered pulling the trigger. He pulled it in Noah's day. And about nearly everybody fell dead. He's going to pull the trigger here again at the end, and over 90% of the people that walk the face of this earth are going to die in the next few years. But he is going to save some out for his namesake. Now we have the opportunity to be saved out, to be some of those that he's talking about right here, that are not cut off, but that are protected and blessed. Blessed. Behold, I have refined you, but not for silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. Didn't I just say he is in the process of choosing? Well, that backs it up. Those that he is choosing, he is choosing from a furnace of affliction. He has laid affliction on the whole church. And he's seeing who will respond to him and who will not. Most will not. Why does it say, think it not strange, the fiery trials that come upon you? Those people in the early New Testament church, when those words were written, were also in a furnace of affliction because they were in their time of salvation then. And we are at the time of the end when God is making the final choices. He's rounding out the full number. See, from Adam on, he's been selecting individuals who will be a part of the 144,000 who are in the bride. And he chose quite a number, I'm sure, in the early New Testament church. And he put them through a fiery furnace of affliction. And now here at the end, we're getting down to the point where he has to make the final choices. And I believe he's choosing a great number from the end-time church. But it's like musical chairs. Be careful that no one take your crown or your chair. God has called us. God has singled us out and said, you are part of my calling. And I want to choose you to be a part of the bride of my son. What an incredible opportunity that is. Will we heed? Well, we're in that furnace of affliction. For my own sake, even for my own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory to another. That reminds me of Romans eleven twenty six, 26, where he says, All Israel shall be saved. Now, if the devil won, and most of Israel was lost, God would be doing what? Giving his glory to another. The devil won. He gets the glory for destroying the plan instead of God getting the glory for making it work. So God is going to make this thing happen. And you and I have an opportunity to be a part of what God is doing. He is going to see it through, and it will happen. There's an awful lot of correction here, but there's also a great deal of hope here. That God is not going to let his plan be destroyed or go unfinished. He will accomplish what he has set his forehand to do. Hearken to me, O Jacob and Israel, my call. He's talking about the church here. Now, he called Israel. He divorced Israel. He will again deal with Israel in the millennium. But in the meantime, he's offered a new covenant, and we are the ones called to that covenant. So this is a message to us. Listen to who I am, he says. Get the picture I'm God, and I'm going to make this thing happen, and you can be part of it. Do we believe it? Do we have faith that if we live and walk by all that he says, we will have eternal life, hope, joy, peace, happiness, and everything that you could possibly dream of? My hand also has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. God can move the planets, the suns, the earth around as he so chooses. We can only sit back and look up and try to count what's up there. But he knows them all by name. He can move them around at will and do as he pleases. Verse 14, all you, assemble yourselves and hear. Listen, he says, which among them has declared these things? How many are standing up and telling you what these scriptures say? The Eternal has loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. God is going to destroy Babylon and the Chaldeans. What are we going to do? Are we going to be destroyed with it? God said he's going to destroy this nation. Will we go down with it? What should we do about it? Let's read on. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and he shall make his way uh, prosperous. God has called Jesus Christ to enact his plan. And he will fulfill his purpose. He's going to use some human beings to do it. He's going to use human beings to proclaim it, to read it. He used Isaiah to proclaim it, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the prophets. He doesn't need prophets of that nature today. All he needs is for us to read what those prophets have said. Most of the church is ignoring what they said. Verse 16, Come you near to me, hear you this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. God has always been there, and now the Lord God in his Spirit has sent me. Speaking, I think, of Christ, but also speaking Isaiah of himself, who was sent to read a message And to those who will read the message at the end, Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, which teaches you to profit, which leads you by the way that you should go. He teaches us how to profit. He said to the end-time church, Bring me my tithes and my offerings, and see if I will not bless you and see if I will not make you a part of my tithe and my offering to this whole world. Will we learn God's way to profit and the way that we should go, or will we not? Oh, that you had hearkened to my commandments. Then had your peace been as a river, and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. Let's go back to Titus 2 just for a moment. That one just came to my mind. Titus 2. What did I want here? No that's, not, no, that's not what I was thinking of. Oh, well, it's okay. We'll move on. There was one I was reading this morning that uh, came back to mind, but that wasn't exactly it. Where was I here now? If you had hearkened to my commandments. There's one back there where it says that they won't pay attention to his commandments. They put his commandments aside. We keep the ones that we like, and then we'll put some of them aside. Then had your peace been as a river, and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. But we tend not to hearken to his commandments. We tend to find ways to uh, let let the flesh do what it wishes. Your seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of your bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Alright, what does he tell us then? Verse 20. Go you forth of Babylon. Flee you from the Chaldeans. He's talking about his people Israel. Are we under the grip of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, or are we not, O Jacob, spiritual Israel? Go forth of Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing declare you. Tell this. Utter it even to the end of the earth. I think that there is something that needs to be repeated and taken to all the ends of the earth, is that God is about to destroy the culture and the society of this world, and everybody had better be warned. Say you, the Eternal has redeemed his servants, Jacob. We are those who are under redemption in the New Testament, being redeemed from this earth. There is going to be a clear-cut difference between those who are part of the culture of this world and those who are of God's culture. We have to leave Babylon. We have to forsake this society and its culture. A lot of people cling to it, even as Lot's wife looked back and did not want to leave her way of life. We cling to some things from Babylon so very hard. We may get cut off. Most of the Jews didn't want to be redeemed from Babylon. Most of the church today does not want to be redeemed from Babylon. They want to give God lip service, live according to the American culture and everything in it, and still be a part of the kingdom of God. It just won't work that way. He says, get away from Babylon. Most will not. Just as only about 10% left Babylon and went back to Jerusalem, only 10% of today's church will leave Babylon and go do what God wants done. Too comfortable in their way of life and their homes and their jobs and their families and whatever it is that they like, their entertainment, the Babylonian culture, its sports, its movies, its anything you want to name. Not willing to lose, leave it because they've grown up in it and like it. And they won't pay any attention to what God says here in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Continue to sit on the fence and not make a commitment to get out of Babylon. Ninety percent will be left behind and go into the tribulation. Just as ninety percent stayed in Babylon and did not go back to Jerusalem when they had opportunity. When Cyrus said, go! Go! 90% stayed. And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He clave the rock also, and the waters gushed out. He reminds what he has done in the past, that he will take care of his people. He gives a little history lesson. He says, go forth out of Babylon. Leave it. I'll take care of you like I took care of your ancestors. They didn't believe, and most today will not believe. They want their cake and eat it too. Verse 22, there is no peace, peace says eternal to the wicked. We're going to live according to the wicked ways of this world. There will be no peace. Count on it. Listen, O coasts, to me, and hearken, you people, from far. The Eternal has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, has he made mention of my name. Now this, as we'll see, is Israel speaking, or Jacob. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver has he hid me, and said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now that's what God started out to do. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their children, God made them as a special arrow hidden in his quiver. He had a special job for Israel to do. Now, that translates today. He has a special job, a special calling for his people to do. We are not to be like the world. Now, we are in an area out here where many of us are living, where we have people who look upon old automobiles as wonderful lawn ornaments. They won't sell them, they won't give them away, they won't allow them to be hauled off, it appears. They have shabby-looking places. Now, if our side of the fence looks like their side of the fence, how would anyone know we are the people of God? If the music they hear coming over our fence is the same as the music we come here hear coming over our fence this way how will we know how will they know <laughs> we are the people of god if god hears the music coming up from their house and the music coming up from our house and can't tell the difference how will he know we are the people of god If they're eating at their table the same thing we're eating at our table, how would anyone know we are the people of God? If they cannot see a difference between the clean and the unclean, how will they know we are the clean? As Haggai says, whoso touches the unclean becomes unclean. And that which is holy cannot touch the unholy. And the priests, the ministry, do not make a difference. And throughout the church today, you do not hear the ministry telling people you should not eat, you should not listen to, you should not view, you should not dress like, you should not be like the people of this world. No. They want to live in high Babylonian fashion and still be called the church of God. They want his name, but not truth and righteousness. It's like someone who wants to marry and have the name, but not do the duties. As we read at the first of chapter 48. No, God chose Israel to do a job, to be different, not to be like the Gentiles around them. We started into Deuteronomy at the Bible study a few days ago, and we began to see that even back then, God was showing that there was to be a difference. Well, if there was to be a difference then, how much different should we be today? I hope you have ears to hear and eyes to see. Will we make the changes and come out of Babylon, or will we not? Will we be special, or will we not? God says here in chapter 49, I called you from the womb to be special, to be a special arrow hidden in my quiver that I could use at a special time, for a special occasion. Now, he needs that arrow now. Because the whole world is going to worship the beast, except for a very few chosen who will say, no, I will worship God. And he would like a quiverful of those children to use against this world. You and I have a chance to be those arrows of spiritual Jacob here at the end. He said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Who is he going to be glorified in here at the end? If not us, if not those whom he's called, who else? No one else has a chance. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the eternal and my work with my God. It seems hopeless, doesn't it? Jacob saying this, look at my history of how I have screwed up royally. And we can look at the church and see how it has messed up royally. And we can look at ourselves and say, look how I have messed up. And we can be discouraged. And think that we spent all of our strength for nothing and in vain. Because even though we are the only ones that have a chance, God says only one in ten is going to answer the call. Only one in ten will be stirred to do something about it, of the whole church, to rebuild the temple here at the end. Most will say it isn't time to build the temple. But let's read on. Surely my judgment is with the eternal, and my work with my God. Thankfully, his mercy endures forever. Thankfully, mercy is one of the weightier matters of the law. God is being patient, and he's giving us a chance, and he's revealing to us what we need to be doing and thinking. And now, says the eternal, it formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, or as my margin says, that Israel may be gathered to him, and that's a better rendition, that Israel may be gathered to him, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the eternal, and my God shall be my strength. I can't overcome on my own. You can't overcome on your own. We have to pray for God's Spirit so that we might walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. My God shall be my strength. He says, be strong, fear not, and work to us. We'll read it before we're done with Isaiah again. And he said, it is a light thing, or are you lighter than that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel? Are we too spiritually lightweight to accomplish what God wants done? Or will we look to him, gain strength, and be spiritual heavyweights? Because we're going to have to be strong enough to apply a knockout punch to the nations of this world and the people of this world and the culture and society of this world. Will we take strength from God and put it aside now so that we become strong enough to do what God wants done with this world? Or will we drift on enjoying what Babylon has to offer and not have that strength? God has given you and me opportunity to restore Spiritual Israel. Starting with ourselves. You can't start with your neighbor. You can't start with somebody in another organization. I can't start with some other minister somewhere. I can only start with me. I can only change me. I can stand here and try to influence you to change you, but I can't change you. I can only show you what you need to do, and I can only do it for myself. And if I'm going to accomplish that, I'd better be on my knees and asking God because I can't do it myself. He wants spiritual Israel restored. He wants his temple built. It has to have building blocks, chosen stones, tried and precious. And I can't make any block but me. You can't make any block but you. Therefore, we have to take personal responsibility to be sure that we are a block that God can use in building his temple. You see, he's got to do it with some individuals. It has to be individuals, personal, one-on-one with God. You can only shape yourself. And if you depend on someone else to do it for you, it won't happen. You have to get tough with self. I have to get tough with self. People have trouble with tough love. They have have trouble being as tough with their children as they need to be to give those children the guidance they need. They have trouble being tough enough with themselves to make the changes they need to make. But as Dr. Phil often says... How's it working for you? If you're not getting things done, and things are still in disarray in your lives, and you are not in control as a manager of your own self, and are not in control in your family, be it father or mother, or your children are not in control of their attitudes and their actions, How is it going to happen unless you take charge of your life and those whom you affect? God says it will happen. His name will not be dirtied and sullied. He will get it done. He is going to have those who become spiritually heavyweight enough to restore the church and Israel and give a light to the Gentiles, to those who are not a part of the church. We must become a light on a hill that cannot be hid, that cannot help but be seen. We must be different from our neighbors around here and from the rest of the world. We don't like, oftentimes, to be perceived as different. Our children don't want to conform. So, they all do the same thing so that you can't tell them one from another. They don't want to be like their parents, so they all look alike. If your children walk down the street... Could anyone say, those must be the children of God's people? They don't look or act like the world. For to be a light to the world and the rest of the world, everyone is spiritual Gentiles but those who have become spiritual Jews. And it doesn't matter what race we are of. We're either spiritual Jews or we're spiritual Gentiles. God has transplanted and he's going to draw his people from all over the world, from every race, as we'll see. I doubt I'll get to it today. I will give you for a light to the Gentiles that you may be my salvation to the end of the earth. What an encouraging thing if we will deliver. Thus says the Eternal, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to him whom man despises, speaking of Christ, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and He shall choose you. He wants a bride to rule the world with Him. And he'll choose us if we come to have that strength. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard you, and in a day of salvation have I helped you. Mr. Armstrong used that as quoted in the New Testament, that this is a day of salvation. It's not the only day of salvation. There are a series of resurrections, whether we fully understand them or not, But I think we've come to understand that the first resurrection will only be 144,000 total. So, those who will be in that resurrection are the ones he's speaking to here in Isaiah. A day of salvation. This is our chance. In a day of salvation have I helped you, and I will preserve you and give you for a covenant of the people to establish the earth to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Who will establish the earth? We will. Kings and priests in the world tomorrow with Jesus Christ as his bride. He can be talking to no one but the 144,000 here. That you may say to the prisoners, go forth. We'll turn them loose from the prison of human endeavor, of human culture, of human desires, and carnality. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves. Come on out in the light. Live by God's way. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. Peace will come. They shall not hunger nor thirst. Neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that has mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. Now I think there's an application right here at the end for us. God has promised that those who come to build the latter temple with the two witnesses will be protected from the heat. He will give a covert from that heat, and he will be a wall of fire around. So this promise is not just to people in the millennium, but it's a promise for now. We will not hunger nor thirst spiritually or physically. And he will show us mercy and lead us by the springs of water. And I will make all my mountains a way, and my highways shall be exalted. What God is going to do at the end cannot be stopped. He'll build a highway. He'll make it possible for his people to come together and form the latter temple. Behold, these shall come from far. And lo, these from the north, from the west, and these from the land of Sinem, that is the far east, will come from every direction to build his temple. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. Those who will be faithful are going to have blessing untold. But Zion said... The Eternal has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Doesn't it seem, a lot of times when we pray, there's no answer? Doesn't it seem like this destruction and frustration and this pressure to overcome and grow will never end? Don't people once in a while say, Well, I can't see God's Spirit working. I don't see great miracles. That's not where we are yet. How can God do miracles through the likes of us? It isn't time for that. It's time to repent, grow, overcome, and be qualified and prepared so that God can use us. We need to use God's Spirit to prepare ourselves. But he says this would be our emotion. It would just seem like, man, this will never end. This is so hard and we get hacked on every week. What's it going to take? So we could give up in futility. But what God has some comforting words, in spite of the conditions we find ourselves in today. He says, can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Does a mother who has a new baby Walk off and forget it or go shopping. Oh, phooey, I forgot I had a baby. Any of you girls ever do that? You've never forgotten your baby, have you? And if you did forget to pick the child up at school or something, didn't you really feel guilty? What an unfit mother. No, you don't forget your sucking child. Yes, they may forget yet will I not forget you. God says, a woman will forget to nurse her sucking child before I forget you. To me, that's a pretty strong promise. Behold, I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God says, I have written your names in the palm of my hand. Do you ever write anything on your hand so you wouldn't forget it? Oh, I know I'm going to forget this. I'll just write it right here. That's a common expression today. It's a common thing that people do today. There's nothing new under the sun. God says, I have written you in the palm of my hand. Your children shall make haste. Your destroyers and they that made you waste shall go before you. They'll flee from you. Those who would persecute us are going to wind up fleeing from us because God is going to make us a sharp, threshing instrument, as he shows in Isaiah and Micah. Lift up your eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to you. Here we're talking about Haggai and Zechariah 3 and 4, 1 through 4. God is going to stir the people to come and build his temple. They're going to gather themselves together and come to the daughter of Zion. As I live, says the Eternal, you shall surely clothe you with them all as with an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. God says, I'm going to start calling people at some point and those that I've called first to prepare a way... Put them on like clothes. Bind them on you, or bond with them, as we might say today, as a bride does. How carefully does a bride put on her bridal clothing? How much attention does she give to it? Now, you may or may not give much attention to what you put on on any given day of the week, but if you're about to get married, you think pretty carefully about what you're going to wear on your wedding day. God says when those people begin to come, we should wear them like a bride wears her clothes. Put them on us. He will do it. For your waste and your desolate places in the land of your destruction shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants and they that swallowed you up shall be far away. God is going to draw people together, and as small as his true group might appear today, whoever they are, he's going to draw a lot of people to them. I think we have an opportunity to be part of that, brethren, because we are beginning to understand. If you don't understand, you can't prepare. If you do understand, you have opportunity. The children which you shall have after you have lost the other shall say again in your ears, The place is too straight for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. They're going to say, Things are too tough elsewhere. I want to come live with you. Wouldn't that be neat if God saw fit to bless us? To the point, people say, Things are tough all over, but God is with you. Let me come live with you. If we could be such a light, that they would come and say, I want to be with you. We're going to lose some, but they'll be sent back in far greater numbers than the ones that are lost. Then shall you say in your heart, Who has begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children, and am desolate, a captive, and removing to and fro? And who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. These, where had they been? At some point, those who are faithful are going to look around and say, Where did all these people come from? I thought we were desolate. I thought we were going to disappear. I thought we were going to die out. And all of a sudden, here they come from every direction, east, north, west, and south. Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. That's what he says in the end of Haggai. He'll set Zerubbabel as a standard to the world, as a banner. And they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. They'll all be coming to Zion. They'll sing as they come to Zion, it says, in another place. And kings shall be your nursing fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their face toward the earth. Doesn't God say ultimately those who are faithful will be worthy of worship? Kings and priests? This is the opportunity for you and me. They'll lick up the dust off your feet, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. We're willing to be patient and see this thing through and make the changes we make. We'll not be ashamed. We'll be joyous and happy because it's all going to turn out right in the long run. That's why we have to lift up our voice aloud and spare not and tell my people their sins so that they might have the opportunity to be a part of this. God is showing who he is and what needs to be done in these prophecies. Let's not be ashamed, let's be joyous. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the lawful captive delivered? But thus says the Eternal, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contends with you, and I will save your children. God is going to make this work. He will not allow his glory to go anywhere else. And I will feed them that oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine, and all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. When it's all down to the place that the whole world worships the beast, except the faithful ten percent who are chosen out of God's church, and they are made a sharp threshing instrument, and go out against the kingdoms of this world, all flesh is going to know that God is God. They cannot deny it any longer. They may not accept it, but they cannot deny it because the whole world will be against those who are faithful to God. But God will deliver, and God will help, and God will save the same way he did with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same he did with Paul, the same way he did with many others. And he will show his mighty arm to the whole world, through those whom he has chosen. And he is choosing right now. I do not want to be the last chosen. I'd like to make my calling and election sure. Let's understand who God is and what he's doing. And let's prepare ourselves to be strong, to be heavyweights, so that we can be a light to the world and the entire world, because that's what God has called us to do. Take personal responsibility to become one of those who will be a part of the shining light of the latter temple.